Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Malachi, or you're welcome to look um, in our uh, bulletin. And uh, if you're just joining us today, uh, I've been preaching through the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old uh, Testament. And uh, he indeed has some great words even for our church, our day and age, uh, to hear. So we are now in Malachi chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 12. And this is the word of the Lord. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heavens for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sacred text that's eternal, it's God-breathed, and it's useful for your church in teaching, correcting, and training, and rebuking us for all righteousness, so that we, the man and woman of God, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I would ask, O Spirit of God, that you would use this text, and as I speak, to illumine our hearts and minds for your will and for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, courtroom dramas have certainly been a favorite for us Americans. We probably have the ones we like the best. For some of us, in the older crowd, it might be Perry Mason. For some of the newer crowd, it might be Law and Order that comes on incessantly on TNT or USA. It's over and over and over again. And that's because we Americans, something about that, we love it. Or if you come from a military background like me, it might be a few good men. There's something about a courtroom drama that draws our attention. Is this person guilty or are they innocent? And we hear the, the plaintiff and we hear the prosecutor and we hear the defendant and we hear the judge all speak and all interact while the jury watches on and ushers a verdict. Well, today, we have the privilege to be whisked into a divine courtroom. Malachi brings his audience, his readers, into a divine courtroom. And the prosecutor is God himself. Notice with me, he says from the beginning, From the days of your forefathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. And he appeals to the guilty party. He says, return to me and I will return to you. You see, right from the beginning, we see in our text today that, that he wants to bring in their minds a reminder, sort of a lesson on history. 
Where have you been and what your past is like? And he brings a heavy charge. He says, you who should be the ones, very ones who should be following me because you've been entrusted with my commands, you've been entrusted uh, with my prophets, my kings, yet you have continued to rebel against this. You have abandoned your call. We saw this earlier in the book of Malachi that right from the beginning, the Israelites are questioning us. They're, they're questioning at the beginning of the book of Malachi, where is your love, God? And God says, I have loved you, Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And he reminds them that Esau will no longer be a nation. And we saw earlier in the book, too, that how they had broken God's commands. The, the priests, the Levites, were not offering the offerings that they should have. They were offering malnourished or uh, 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 offerings that God did not require. Things that were not pleasing to him. And that we also saw in chapter 2 how the Levites were not giving good instruction. In fact, they were giving bad instruction. And all these things started to trickle down. Last week we talked about the whole issue of divorce and unfaithfulness and, and covenantal relationships, how God hates divorce. And all these things, God is building a continual charge against the Israelites and in a sense, what God is saying to these people, and He's trying to help them remember this, that you're no better than your mommy, your daddy, your granddaddy, or your grandpappy, however you may call them. You have continued to follow a line of rebellion against my call. And notice, though, what the Israelites claim. Look with me in chapter 3. They ask the question, how shall we return? It's almost presumptuous, and, all, and there's, all, there's a sense of ignorance there on them. In other words, what have we been doing wrong? What is it that we've been doing so bad? Well, God brings another accusation to them, and He asks a rhetorical question. He says, will a man rob God? Will a man rob God? Now, throughout the years, robbery has happened. People have coveted and desired something that is not theirs, that God has not given them, and they have stolen. It's happened throughout the ages of time. Uh, began with Cain and Abel. Cain did not like Abel's sacrifice, and he, he wanted to steal from that and steal God's blessing. And so he stole Abel's life from his parents. Throughout time, too, we've done many things to protect against theft, have we not? We have our uh, internet protections these days. We uh, have security. If you go to foreign countries, they have their walls around their houses. When I was in Nigeria, that was a real eye-opener for me because every house had a fence around it because thievery was so bad. And on top of those fences, those brick walls were either nails or sharp glass stuck into the concrete so as to keep thieves out. On almost every house, too, they had iron gate doors, which some of our homes today are even developing to keep people out, to protect from theft and robbery. Wherever we're at, though, there's this constant battle between the thieves and those who don't want to be stolen from. But here in the Word of God, we're reminded by something by... Malachi, will a man rob 
God. You see, there's something about that that's interesting because there's a deception that's believed. There's a deception that the Israelites think they can rob God. And they think, even though they would say probably that's not possible, they do it anyway, don't they? You see, robbing from God is absolutely impossible. There is no way you and I can do it. God is the all-seeing deity. And for us, for those of you children, He's better than Santa who knows when you're sleeping or when you're awake. He sees all and He knows all. He knows the motives that are in a person's heart. And He is not fooled. He is not distracted. He is the video camera of the body and soul. He knows what is going on, you and I, even before we think it. And yet, in spite of who He is, the Israelites are robbing Him. And notice what they say next. How are we robbing you? Boy, that's a, a, a very callous soul. How are we robbing you? What are we doing wrong? And He tells them, here's the third accusation, and don't miss it, in tithes and offering. So what is a tithe? Tithe literally means one-tenth. It's a percentage. A tithe was a giving a one-tenth of the Israelites' profit back to the Lord. And it was something that was commanded of them. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, All of the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, and of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is, un, it is holy unto the Lord. And in asking for a tithe, the Lord was reminding the Israelites who really possessed the land. Was it their land? Or was it God's land? The tithe along with the other festivals the Israelites had, such as the Feast of the Booths or the Weeks or the First Fruits, along with the Sabbaths, were all means that God used to test His children. To test if they really believed that there was a God who was ultimately in control of their bounty and their blessings. And to see if they would trust Him with their well-being. A portion of it was to be consumed annually at the temple and was to be burned up. And the rest was to be given to the priests. Why was it to be given to the priest? Well, Moses reminded them with his words in Deuteronomy. He says, Eat the tithe of the grain, the new wine and the oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose as the dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. You see, whenever a tithe is giving or these offerings were giving, it was always a part of worship. You can't have worship without offerings and tithes. It is just as important to the worship service as the Lord's Supper or the preaching of the Word or the reading of the Word is the sense of giving offerings and tithes. In Numbers 18, uh, verses 8 through 24, Moses described the tithe by using the same word which we have here for offering. And so the best we can assume here is that what, what, what Malachi is getting at is, is the tithe or offering that was supposed to be given to the priest and to the Levites. But the problem was, uh, Malachi tells us, is the whole nation, not just some, not just part, but the whole nation was holding back their tithes and offerings to the priest. And ultimately, they were holding back to God. Now, I want you to notice something about the connection of giving a tithe. It is relational in nature. You see, the Jews were to give to the Lord at least a tenth of their possessions. Their possessions were then to be turned over and entrusted to the Levites as a means of providing for the Levites' needs. 
as they ushered in worship, as they led in worship, as they taught in worship. The priests and the Levites were supposed to do that. In return, the Levites would provide the means of spiritual survival by teaching them God's commands and performing the sacrifices that God said only the Levites, only the priests can do. They were a tribe set aside by God to do the works of God. As one author put it this way, the function of the Levites in the land is to remind Israel that her ultimate calling is not merely to enjoy its produce, but relationship with them. So if the Levites are neglected, it is not simply a sign of disobedience, but of falling away from the relationship which the Levites themselves model. This whole idea of tithing and, and its relationalness shows us that this relationship between the Levites and the Israelites are symbiotic. One cannot survive without the other. Both is dependent upon each other. And the problem, as I said before, is the whole nation was robbing God their tithes and offering. Now, we need to notice something. Let's think what the people probably were thinking. Remember in chapter 2, what was the charge against the priests? They weren't doing right. They were letting any just sacrifice just come up to the altar. Perhaps they were even taking the best and putting up something less than the best for their own keeping. In fact, their teaching, we're told, by Malachi was pitiful at best. They weren't doing their jobs. You can almost see the language of the people behind this. Their reasoning. I'm not going to give my lamb to the priest. They're not doing their job. Why should I give this when they're only going to use it for what they want? When me and my family, well, we need it too. Why, we have enough to worry about here. Times are tough. You know, God, things are not happening as we should. And if I give it to the temple, I'm just giving it to these Levites, and they're no good anyway. Well, Malachi reminds us that this excuse does not fly in the eyes of God. He says very poignantly, you are robbing me. You're taking what should be mine. And it's not yours to have. You see, men and women, we must learn that all that we have, all we possess, is God's own. We should never just say, my money. I mean, we, we say that at times, in a sense, but it's never ours. It's entrusted to us. And the word there, the best word is stewardship. We are, given, we are put in trust as a steward. We're entrusted certain amount of riches and certain amount of possessions. And the better we handle those, the more we're usually given in God's economy. And so we're called to be stewards. And as a good steward, we're, supposed, we're called by the owner of it all to give a portion back to his church, back to his calling. So we might wonder, no wonder you're having such a bad time after the exile. You're putting a curse on yourself. You're experiencing God's cursing. You can almost say, hear them saying, who, me? And God saying, yes, you. You're doing this all. Well, before I go on a little further, I just want to hit a pause here because we don't live in a theocracy like the Jewish nation did. Uh, they lived in a state where there was a state-run church. Here in New Testament times, as Christ has come, we live, we live in a, a, a state and the church is separate from the state. So, Doug, how does this teaching work? What's the differences and are there anything we need to note here? 
Well, one of my favorite pastors is a guy named John Piper, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with John Piper. He's a godly man, and he had a couple things just to mark about the tithe that we should remember here in our day and age. Some mistaught things that are often communicated. And the first mistaught thing he brings up is that Jesus abolished the tithe. Well, dear friends, that's not true. You never read, you have heard it said to you, bring all the tithe to the storehouse, but I say to you, 5% will do or even two. We never hear Jesus say that. Instead, we hear him say, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and the rue and every herb, but you neglect the justice and the love of God. These things, the tithing, you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus' command is, yes, we continue to tithe, but that should be accompanied with the loving of our neighbor. The Pharisees had failed in that. Another thing that is often accused is that proportional giving has ceased to be the rule. Paul does not use the command to tithe because proportionate giving is now the rule, he says. Well, that's not true either. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says on the first day of the week, On every week, each of you should put something aside and store up. Here's the key phrase, as he may prosper, so that contributions need not to be made when I come. In other words, proportionate giving is the rule. God blesses, and sometimes God blesses abundantly. And sometimes we have more than we need. And it's very easy for us to say, well, I've just given my 10%. I've checked that box. I'm good to go. And we hoard the rest. But God says, give proportionately. Give as He is blessed. If He has super abundantly blessed you, well, shouldn't we super abundantly give back to God? A third error that we have often is we give so that we may be blessed. And this is the postmodern sort of self-centered view of giving. And we get it so much from these guys who have the names of Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland. We give so that we can get You know, sometimes uh, children do this. If I do this, can I get this? It's not really a, a desire to give to honor. It's a desire to give to get. It's a bait and switch. You see, what Malachi says is, no, dear friends, what we do is we give to glorify God. We give because He has given us all. And not just merely our possessions. He gives us our health. He gives us family and so many things. And it all begins as we see our salvation. If we see our salvation as a gift from God, as something we cannot earn or deserve, or something we can't work so we can get it, then how much more do we want to give on based on the gift that God has given to us? What does Jesus expect from our giving? Well, first of all, He expects you to give. He expects me to give. Jesus did not say to the disciples, if you give, but rather, when you give. There's an expectation from Him. Are you giving? And not only that, giving teaches us to fear God. I love this passage here when I was preparing for this. Deuteronomy 14.23 One of the purposes for tithing is that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. The principle is very simple. If we put honoring God first in our finances, that same principle will carry over in other areas of our life. It's just that simple. Because our money, and I know it, it's hard. 
It's hard to let go of those strings. It's very easy in our minds and in this world because every, almost every advertisement is all about you and how good you can get it if you invest in this. Do it your own way, right? No rules, just right. We could go on about the different sayings. They're all focused back on ourselves. But if we keep tithing as the forefront of our finances, it demonstrates a commitment to keep God always in the forefront of all of our experiences. That's how we get blessed by it. And lastly, I'd say the New Testament experience is the standard of giving is Christ Himself. Instead of arguing for 10%, Paul just scuttles this debate in the book of 1 Corinthians on how much you're supposed to give. He says, Just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired to see you, see that you abound in this gracious work. And the gracious work he's talking about there is giving as well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The difference between the New Testament times and the Old Testament times is the Old Testament, it was was a commandment to do this based on a relationship to the Levites, a symbiotic. But in the New Testament times, the the difference is much grander. We give because of what Christ has given to us. He is the gift, and He is the ultimate standard of giving. The issue is not what am I required to give, but how much can I give because God gave me so much in Christ. That is the understanding. And dear friends, this is terribly important. George Barner in a recent survey shared that most Americans only give 2.5% of their total salary to some form of charitable organization. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, was quoted in saying Christians during the Depression gave a greater percentage more than Christians do today. And that is very sad. It is very tempting during our times of hardship to give up. And it's only when, and it's only when we should, the only time we shouldn't be tithing or shouldn't be giving is when we have no more other means, uh, to, or we have, we, we don't have the means enough to survive on. In other words, you gotta at least survive first and then go from that. But the problem is for many of us, is that we're much more easier to say, well, I can't survive without my cable TV, or I can't survive without my membership to the Y, or we could go on down the list. But the standards are taking care of ourselves first. And we need to watch out for that. Our God requires us to give, to honor Him, by giving 10% of our income. Now, I would encourage you uh, to, to, to think about this. Some of you might be thinking, though, uh, and I just want to address this directly. Well, Doug, this benefits you directly. You're coming in here helping us, and we're paying you a little bit, or it's going to help the next pastor, so you're helping them out. Dear friends, I want to let you know the way the church works. The only person who sets the salary is the congregation in agreement with the elders. That's where salaries are set at. So that is very comforting for you to know. It's not about the pastor or who it is. It's about the elders in leading the church. Second of all, in giving our tithes, it shows us where our heart is at. You see, when we give, 
our, our, our giving should be as a means, as I said earlier, to honor and glorify God. You see, where we put our treasure, our hearts will follow. Let me tell you about two rich men Jesus encountered. You know the story. One was called a rich young ruler. We never know his name. And when this rich young ruler told Jesus all the commandments he followed and he wanted to follow Jesus and go with him, Jesus said, you're lacking one thing. Go and sell that which you possess and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And then Jesus tells us next how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, what's sad is that his heart, his treasure was on the monetary treasure. And he didn't see the greater treasure in Christ. It's interesting as you read through this, it's only a couple verses later that we run into this guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is sort of the antithesis of this rich young ruler. He's a tax gatherer. And tax gatherers back in those days would be comparable to mafia. Okay? You get the picture? And he's short. And he's so short he has to climb a tree so he can see Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. Remember the old song, I'm going to your house today? And Zacchaeus says to him, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You see, Zacchaeus understood where the treasure was. It isn't what in what he had, it was who was in his house. And he wanted who was in his house to be in his heart. Because if he had who was in his house in his heart, he was infinitely rich. And that is the great temptation that we as a church can forget. We can forget how great of treasure Christ is. So things that are impossible with people, such as a rich man letting go of their wealth, are indeed possible with God. Because here we see Zacchaeus coming to Christ. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. What a testimony. So if your treasure is in your house, or land, or cars, or boats, or collection items, or lifestyles, or clubs, or stocks... That's where your heart's going to be also. But my prayer is and my trust is that this church will have Jesus at the center of their hearts. And as a result of Jesus being at the center of hearts, their treasure will be there as well. Their wealth will be there in giving back to Him. So may I encourage you to think about these things. And I would add to you young people, think about them greatly. Right now, sociologists in our church are telling us that the church in about 40 to 50 years is going to be in a huge problem because right now the generations of 20s and 30-somethings are not giving like the generations before them. And it's just a mountain, an avalanche that's about ready to hit the church. It's already hit Europe and it's coming close to us. And children, I would say to you about tithing, one of the things I had to learn early on as a young boy is that when some a parent gives you a gift or a grandparent, and you get that nice $50 check or whatever it is, and you're like, man, I can go buy this toy. I would encourage you to think of that as not as a $50 gift, but as a $45 gift. Because those first $5 should go to God and honoring to Him as a tithe. Don't be mistaken. It's all God's. And we begin by honoring Him with the tenth. 
So what does God continue in saying to these Israelites? What does He tell them? He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And the reason is that there might be food and nourishment in His house. Now, dear friends, I used to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I love that ministry. And that is a wonderful parachurch ministry. But it is not a church ministry. It's a parachurch. And where God calls us to bring the tithe in first is into a church. i got to tell you, it is very much more glamorous to give and you see people coming to Christ than maybe your money going to pay a water bill. But it starts out in the church because the church is the God-ordained means in which giving is supposed to come. This is supposed to be the storehouse. And as ministries come forward and as the elders begin to ponder and think about who should we support and who should we give to, the church collectively gives as a whole. Because now the whole congregation is behind that giving and in prayer support to help that family or help that missionary out. The church is the God-ordained means of giving. And notice what God says. Test me in this. Test me in it. You know, this is so rare for God to say, test Him. And basically He's saying, I want you to evaluate my dependability in this. Evaluate me. See if I'm faithful in this. Well, a few years ago when I preached this sermon to a church that I had the privilege to pastor, I read to them this psalm. Psalm 71, verse 18 and 19. And it says, Oh God, you have taught me from our youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are able to come. You see, I believe one of the ways we tell the next generation and we remind ourselves is to remember how God blesses. How when we test God to honor the tithe and offering, He cares and He ministers to us. When I was on staff and as a single man working as a missionary campus crusade, I did not make a ton of money. This was my total salary for a month was $1,372 before taxes. At home it was... Uh, $1,051. That was my monthly income. But, but, but God convicted me. He called me to tithe. And so I tithe. And then I had the delight of having my roommate to be head of the, of the finance committee of the church I was going to. And guess what the church's goal was? To build a new building. And so my roommate was calling people, Daniel was his name, to consider giving more on top of their tithe to help... Uh, move towards a building fund. So I heard him talking about this all the time. And here I am, a poor missionary, not making much, and sometimes making less than I because I didn't get full paychecks sometimes. And I knew through Daniel talking to me, God was challenging me to give $1,000 that year above my normal tithe. Well, I decided to do so. And over the next year, I was able to give $1,000 over my tithe. And I was reading Malachi about that time. And I started to get frustrated with God. You ever been frustrated with God? Well, this pastor has. And I said, God, I've been doing it. Where's the blessing? Where are you at? Y'all don't ever think that, do you? I'm glad I'm not alone. Well, God had to deal with that and remind me that uh, we don't give with strings attached. We give because He calls us to give. But about three weeks later, I was in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I was working a missions project, and a buddy of mine called me up out of the blue. He said, hey, Doug, uh, 
if you could go on a plane trip anywhere in the world, where would you like to go? I was like, whatever. Okay. Hey, how about the Reds? And anyways, we were talking sports after that. Hung up the phone, didn't think a world anymore about it. A couple weeks later, this guy, Sam, called me up again. And he says, I meant what I asked you. Where would you like to go in the world? I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, Doug, I have these buddy passes right now. My friend has given them to me. And pretty much we can fly Delta Airlines and we can go wherever we want to go for free, Doug. All I ask is you pick up maybe the rental car when we get there. Well, uh, that's a very sober thing to a young single man. And so I began to ponder, where would we like to go? And, and Sam and I both came to the conclusion we wanted to go to Alaska. And so we went to Alaska. And for 10 days, it only cost me $350, I got to go to Alaska. And it was an absolute blast. I caught my fill, a silver salmon. I even shipped it home. And by God's grace, I was able to save my last piece of silver salmon when I was dating Amber. (laughs) You know, it was an amazing blessing. And I was up there catching salmon on my last day up there. And here I see a bald eagle swooping in. And just one of those picturesque moments. And all I could help to say was, praise God. Thank you, God. And help me to remember who's ultimately in control. The problem so often for all of us, as my problem was, is I am so nearsighted when I should be farsighted in faith. And trust in the very good nature, the very gracious nature of our loving God who gives to us when we so often do not deserve it. So dear friends, I would encourage you, listen to God. He will bless exceedingly. It is in His nature as our divine Father to give because He wants to give. And when we honor Him with our tithes and offerings, we do it not to get, but so that He might be glorified. And when we do that, there becomes a great delight in our souls in honoring Him. And when we see those blessings fall down, we still continue to say, oh, we're not worthy. But how wonderful and blessed You are, God, to consider us and give to us. Psalm 16, David says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. And I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness and joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you call us to some challenging things. And tithing is one of those. And like many ministers, it is not an easy subject to preach upon. Uh, Finances are challenging. Because Jesus was right. They get right to the core and they get right to our heart. Oh Lord, help us to consider what you would call us to do. Help us each to be faithful and giving to you as a result of what you've given to us in Christ Jesus. May we not just say, well, I've done my bit. I've checked my box. I've given my 10%. Help us to always consider Christ's example and how He, the Father gave the ultimate gift in His Son. And as we reflect on that now in the Lord's Supper, may you get honor and glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.